It's good to be back. Uh, Becky and I were out of town last week, camping down south, loved uh, being able to be in creation and um, stepping away and spending time with each other and with our kids and just pouring into that, uh, though we always miss being here uh, with you all, though <clears throat> thankful for Pastor Stefan, did a great job last week uh, dealing with some really, really tricky issues and appreciate it. I appreciate it. Uh, got a lot of feedback from people. Um, on that, how much they enjoyed that, how they found that to be beneficial and a blessing to them. So I'm, I find it a great blessing to be able to step away and not worry about uh, who's in the pulpit and whether or not they're being faithful to the scriptures. Um, this morning, we, we're moving through this sermon series, what does the Bible say about that? And we come to an issue that honestly, I, I've, I know I've never preached on this um, and I've never heard a sermon on this. And I think that's really uh, to, to all of our disadvantage. This is something that's not discussed very often in the church, really, if ever, in the church. Uh, and yet it's something that's so prevalent and prominent in our society. And I'm talking about depression. Um, so bear with me this morning. This will look very, very different than a typical Sunday morning in terms of, of, of our time in the scriptures and where we're going um, how we approach this, and, and really uh, my heart, my intent, my hope for us this morning. And so it'll just be different. I'm going to give us a lot of information up front. We, we value applicational preaching. Um, I think there's a lot of information that we need uh, in terms of this. My tone, I'm going to try to match my tone with the, the content um, of, of what we're dealing with. And so, you know, I've just tried to measure even in my own mind, like don't make silly, stupid statements as you move through. This is a serious, serious issue. Um, and so here's, here's what this morning's going to look like. In a minute, I'm going to take probably 10 or 12 minutes to try to frame this whole thing up for us. What is it that we're talking about? Uh, different factors and things that lead into this, uh, how we arrive at this. And then I've got three goals. Let me just give you the three goals of what I want to accomplish this morning. The first is this, is I want us to be able to see the Bible's engagement on this issue. I want us to see... Uh, how the Bible talks about this and, and where the Bible talks about this, um, how the Bible encourages us with respect to response to this. And more than anything, what I, want, what I want us to see this morning is honestly how prolific this is in the scriptures. Uh, I, I've just honestly been shocked as I've been studying for this. Just It's everywhere. It is all throughout the scriptures. So I want us to see the Bible's engagement on this issue. Second goal, um, and, and the second goal is probably going to be the closest thing to what you would typically see on a Sunday morning here, is I want us to walk through a psalm, actually two psalms, the, the, uh, Psalm 42 and 43. Um, and, and as we walk through that, even that will be different in that my intent is for us to really feel and sense and experience the psalm. And so, so we have this sense of understanding of the psalmist and where they're at. And, and I hope for most of you in the room, when I talk about depression, it's something that someone else struggles with and you have no experience with. Though I know for a fact that's not true. I know it's not true. And so I want us, though, for some of you that you, maybe you've never wrestled with this issue. Um, and we praise God for that. But I want you to be able to, to see and understand and feel and experience what it would feel like. So no doubt as you're walking alongside someone who is struggling with this, you're able to minister to them. And then thirdly, uh, we'll talk about how do we respond to this. And some of that will be bore out of uh, Psalm 42 and 43. Some of that will be bore out of a few other places in the scriptures. Um, but really, as, as we look through this, how do we respond to this? Um, as we've done with every week in this series, uh, this week will be no different. There's a phone number at the bottom of the sermon notes in the bulletin. There's a phone number at the bottom of the screen. And as we move through, as you have questions, feel free to text them in. In fact, if you have a question right now, text it in. Uh, you don't have to wait. Uh, but our intent is to be able to answer questions on this. I'll tell you, I'm kind of terrified of the text in time this morning. Uh, seriously, seriously, because the implications, the implications, if you get something like this wrong, can be devastating. Um, but by God's grace and through the courage that we have in the spirit, right? We're, we don't, we're, we're not timid or fearful, uh, but as Paul tells Timothy, right? We're bold and courageous because of the spirit. We're going to answer hard questions on this. So if you have questions, text them in. If we get to the end of the time and we have no questions, I'll praise God and we'll all go home. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but here's the main idea. The, 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 the thrust of where we're going this morning. This is a little bit different than what you have in your sermon notes. I've 
I've modified it just a little bit, but here it is. It's this. This is where God is leading us this morning. Our response to depression is to run to Jesus and to offer encouragement, care, and patience to others. Our response to depression is first to run to Jesus and then to offer encouragement, care, and patience to others. In fact, you'll see the latter half of that statement is bore right out of the biblical text. Before we do anything else, I want to pray. I want to ask God to give us wisdom. I want to ask God to give us courage to help us hear and to respond accordingly to what he has for us here this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come before you, um, God, honestly, I come with some trepidation and fear in in terms of this issue, and we want to represent rightly what your word says. Uh, We want to communicate clearly. Uh, God, we want to do so with great compassion and love and care and concern uh, for those who maybe have had seasons in their life where they're struggling with this. Um, Maybe right now they're struggling with this. Maybe someone's sitting in here Uh, this morning, and there's just a darkness in their soul. We pray that you would come and you'd speak to us. God, whether we're struggling with this, whether we're walking with someone who's struggling with this, whether this is something that's going to show up in our life in the coming days, weeks, months, or years, um, whatever it may be, uh, God, I take great solace in the fact that through the power of your word, you speak to your people. And so we pray that's exactly what you would do this morning, that you would open our hearts and our minds to see Uh, really the broader sense of what the scriptures speak to uh, on this issue, that you would give us wisdom, that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear. God, as always, we pray for another church in the area. And this morning, I pray for Sean uh, Sean Sloan and for Heritage Christian Fellowship. I pray for Sean as he preaches. I pray for that body of believers as they um, are being ministered to. God, that you would be at work in them and that you would have your way Uh, with your people there. Uh, God, have your way with us as well. Um, Give us wisdom. Give us insight. uh, Help us, guide us, lead us as we move through this today. And we pray this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, what does the Bible say about depression? Let me frame this up here for a few minutes, and then we'll get to these three goals Depression in its most generic sense could be described or defined as feelings of dejection or despondency. It has this incredibly wide range. On one end, way over here, you have severe clinical depression. Way over here on the other side of the continuum, you have, I feel down. And everything in between. And it's incredibly difficult to attempt to even capture uh, the fullness of of this. Now, the term depression itself is more of a clinical term. And I think sometimes maybe our misunderstanding or our confusion around this is, is historically we've used a whole host of words to describe and define what often we simply use the word depression for today. So words like sorrow, despair, melancholy, despondence, woe, uh, dejection, hopelessness, faint-heartedness, and we could go on and on and on. But, but as you start throwing words out there, what begins to happen in that word group is, is you begin to fill up. You have a better sense of, of the broad reach, of the broad scope of the range that falls into this uh, reality. And depression as a term in and of itself, truly it's inadequate to be able to capture the whole of what's actually going on inside of people. And so I think that, that we start thinking about a variety of these words. And in fact, you'll see as we move through, I'm going to use different words at times um, on purpose to give us a fuller sense of what's happening. But when, we, when, when you think of depression, typically the question is, what causes depression and why does it exist? Like, what, what, where does this come from? Why does it exist? Like, wh- why do we have to wrestle with this? And certainly the fall is very much a part of that. But I found this to be incredibly helpful. So a guy named David Pallison, in fact, that's a name you might want to get down, P-O-W-L-I-S-O-N, David Pallison, um, is, is one of the godfathers when it comes to biblical counseling. And he's got all kinds of great resources out there on a variety of issues. But in speaking to depression, Pallison lists probably seven, eight, nine factors that contribute to depression. I, w- I want to walk through six of them this morning, just to give us a fuller sense of understanding how, why, how and why people arrive here. 
Because I think, I think even in this, a lot of us are, are pretty narrow in our view of this. So here's six factors um, that contribute to depression. And here's what you have to understand. Um, sometimes it's all six of these things. Uh, sometimes it's just one of these things. Sometimes it might be two or three of these things. Any of these could be factors that would lead us to either seasons or, or a, a more of a lifelong struggle with respect to depression. Here's the first one. Factors that contribute to depression, physical they are physical factors. Physiological components that go on inside of people that lead to depression. Here's the most obvious illustration out there, postpartum depression. I mean, reasonably, like if, if you really start wrestling with that and you start thinking reasonably, how in the world could you be depressed after having a baby? We just did a baby dedication. I mean, that child was adorable. Like who in their right mind would be depressed? It makes no sense logically. And yet for how many women, right, do you struggle through that. And, and one of the things you have to understand about depression, it's not logical. It's just not. So you have physiological factors. They're hormonal. There might be thyroid issues. You can have side effects to different medications. There's all kinds of things, but it's physical. Second factor. This one is maybe one of the hardest ones on the list, but it's temperament. Your temperament. Some people are just more melancholy, morose, sadder, more down individuals. It's just the reality of how God wired you. See, all of us have specific temperaments. And every, every temperament has certain things that are really, really good things. And there are benefits to that temperament. But also, the, 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 the kickback of that is that every temperament has, has aspects that, that are detriments or cons to it. And so some of you, right, some of us, we have temperaments that cause us to have a greater tendency or greater proclivity towards depression. I can't prove this. I don't know that we'll ever be able to prove this, but I am personally convinced that King David was one of these guys. I think he had a temperament that, was, that lent itself towards us. I mean, good grief, when you read his writings, it's constantly around this stuff. And so some of us have these temperaments. Now, now, putting people like that around a bunch of eternal optimists does not help them. It actually makes it worse, all right? And further, if you don't have a temperament like this, expecting people to just change them, that, that's not going to help, all right? So temperament. Thirdly, disappointment and loss. These are different things that show up in our life. Death, divorce, disease, loss of job, loss of relationship, right? There's something that has happened or a series of things that happen in my life that become a factor that will contribute towards depression. Similar to that is what Pallison describes as difficulty in life. It's the reality of living in a sin-scarred world, that we live in a very broken world. You cannot watch a newscast ever and not see that reality front and center. I think that's why they always finish with like some story about some guy rescuing a pet out of the sewer or like a cat surfing or something because they want to finish with good news because what they've given you for the last 25 minutes isn't good news that they've just pushed the reality that life is difficult and that the world is broken. That's part of what will contribute to depression a fifth item that Pallison notes is what he calls distortions of belief. This is the one that I think is so grievous, but it's the idea that God can't possibly love me. See, I have a distortion of who God is, and I have a distortion of who I am, and it leads me to think wrongly about myself and about God. In fact, we'll see that in the psalm that we move to here in a little while. Here's the final one, and I intentionally did this one last because what I wanted you to see was a host of factors, none of which were inherently this final item, which is sin. Sin can be a factor that contributes to depression. It is not the only factor that contributes to depression. Further, when we're talking about sin here, we're, we're, we're talking about continued habitual sin which hopefully as a believer, God would engage us in that as a sign of his love and affirmation for us. That's what Hebrews tells us. God disciplines those whom he loves, right? And so when we continue in sin because God loves us, 
he's going to correct us. And so depression sometimes, sometimes is a result of sin. But hear me, loved ones. Hear me when I say this. All depression is not a result of sin. Did you hear that? It is not always sinful. Yes, sometimes it is a result of sin. And we don't want to go to the other end and be like, well, it can never be sinful. No, sometimes it's because sin in our life leads us to this place. But not all depression is rooted in sin. So, given that framework, let's go tackle these three goals. What is the Bible's engagement on depression? Normally, this would be the time of the message. We'd turn to a specific text. We'd press into that and, and let that be the thing that speaks to us this morning. But really what I want to do is I want to step back and I want to take the whole of the scriptures and kind of bird's eye view, 30,000 feet, uh, Genesis to Revelation, everything in between. Let's talk about what the whole of the Bible says with respect to uh, this notion of depression. Two things I want us to get with respect to this. First of all, there are multiple points of reference. There are multiple points of reference. What does the Bible say? Uh, what's the Bible's engagement on depression? A lot! Okay? It, it, but that doesn't really work for a subpoint in a sermon. So there's multiple points of reference. In short, the Bible is prolific about this. It speaks regularly to this topic. However, 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 never at any point in the scriptures is it comprehensive on this issue. Which honestly is true of most items in the scriptures. But it's not like you can turn to 2 Corinthians 11 or something like, like oh, that's the, that's the chapter on depression. And I think if God did that, we'd never read it, right? It'd be like, I don't want to read that chapter. But there's multiple points of reference. But because none of them are comprehensive, we really need the whole of the scriptures to begin to speak into this. And so we see this in a couple forms. We see it in the lives of individuals, and we see it in the scriptures themselves. Let's talk about individuals here for a minute. In fact, one of the things for me as I studied this was just, I just found it shocking how many of the key figures in the scriptures found themselves either in seasons or even lifetimes of struggling with this issue. This is far from a comprehensive list, but here comes a number of names. Abraham. I bet you didn't think I was going to start with Abraham. But check out what it says in Genesis 15, 12. It ta- speaking of Abraham, it says, a dreadful and great darkness came upon him. Now, if you go back and you start reading in the context, you're like, well, I, I think he's talking about night. I doubt it. I doubt it contextually, and I doubt that they would say it that way. I think Moses would have said it differently if he was just talking about it was nighttime. And I believe that because Moses himself struggled with this. In fact, there's multiple places you can go to in, in the Old Testament that would speak to that. Uh, one, of, one of the most obvious places is Numbers 11, when Moses asked God to kill him. It's like, I'm done with it, man. Kill me now. How about Job? You've got like a whole book, right? I mean, that, that, that's probably the most comprehensive treatment we have in the Scriptures. And that guy, you want to talk about disappointment and loss and difficulty in life. I mean, that guy literally wrote the book on it, right? I mean, like, there it is, 42 chapters, book of Job. But that guy knows all too well about this. In the book of Jonah, we see multiple times where Jonah is wrestling through this Jonah 2 in his prayer. As he's descending into the depths and assumes that he's going to die. About the prophet Elijah. 1 Kings 18 has one of the greatest victories any prophet had. Just destroys the prophets of Baal. What's happening in 1 Kings 19? Well, he's in the wilderness under, under a tree and he's ready to die. King Saul. Uh, King Saul tells us in 1 Samuel that he had a harmful spirit of the Lord that, that would torment him. Uh, and then in kind of an ironic and twisted way, David was the guy that was brought in to play for him, to comfort him, which I'm sure that created a number of other issues down the line where you know for a fact it did uh, because of the, the dynamic in that relationship. And then, of course, you've got to talk about David. That guy, as I've already said, I think his temperament was bent towards this, but he had plenty of difficulty and disappointment and loss and struggle in his life as well that led to this. You've got Jeremiah. I called Jeremiah the weeping prophet. I mean, I haven't even touched on the New Testament yet. And yet how many guys, right, how many guys, how many people wrestled through seasons or good parts of their life where they're wrestling through this issue? In fact, not only in the scriptures, um, how many of you guys have heard of a guy named Charles Spurgeon? Right. Most of you have heard that name. Spurgeon, um, Spurgeon was given a nickname. He was called the Prince of Preachers. Many people believe that Charles Spurgeon was the greatest preacher that has ever lived that was not named Jesus. 
at the age of 24, Spurgeon began to talk about what he defined as a causeless depression. I can attribute nothing to what is going on inside of me. And he talked about it being the dark night of his soul and how he would just at times weep for hours on end without any explanation. Some of the, my, my point being this, some of the mightiest people who have done some of the greatest things for God are people that have wrestled through great seasons or the entirety of their lives with this issue. And when you look at this list and you see all these names, you, you see the various factors that we talked about already beginning to, to contribute to them, right? You've got Abraham and, and, and it's, there's this physical piece. You've got David and I think it's his temperament. You've got Jeremiah and he's, he's mourning the loss of what's happening there. Saul, I think his was due to sin. There's multiple points of reference in individuals. And then there's multiple points of references in the scriptures themselves. I mean, I could have turned to roughly 50 Psalms to preach this morning. It's a third of the biggest book in the Bible. They're speaking specifically to some aspect of this issue. Uh, you, multiple times in the book of Proverbs, talking about anxiety in the heart and being crushed in spirit. You get to the New Testament, all kinds of different places. You could go Philippians 4, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Corinthians 1, all these different pieces that are talking about uh, the, the, the scriptures. Here's what I want you to see. The Bible is prolific. It's prolific in dealing with this issue, which should give us great hope that God did not leave us to try to figure this out on our, on our own. But he's like, no, I'm going to speak to this. There are multiple points of reference. Here's the second thing I want you to, to see. How does the Bible handle depression? How does the Bible handle depression? Let me take us to one place here briefly before we get to Psalm 42 and 43 that I have just found to be so helpful on this. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, about three-quarters of the way through the New Testament. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, it's the end of Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica. And at the end of that letter, he's just like pounding out all these different things. Like, do this, do this, do this, do this. And in verse 14, here's what Paul says. Let me read to you. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. Some of your translations might say unruly or undisciplined. Really talking about people who are in sin. Admonish or rebuke the idol. And then check out this shift. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See, <clears throat> there's this massive distinction just in this verse in terms of what Paul is saying really to two separate groups of people. So look at the first half of the verse. Um, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol, rebuke, exhort uh, the idol, the unruly, uh, the, the undisciplined, uh, whatever it may be. See, what Paul is doing there in that church is he's doing what we see throughout the scriptures when there's sin. It's a confrontation. It's a rebuke. It's direct. It's clear. It's pointed. Stop doing that. God says no. That's how he's handling that. And then on a dime, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And Paul makes this huge distinction here between admonishing the idol and how we deal with the faint-hearted or the weak. And one of the things that's important to understand is when you see that word faint-hearted, when you start rolling throughout the scriptures and you see that oftentimes, um, in the scriptures, the exhortation that's given is to not be afraid. That's God's response to the faint-hearted is to not be afraid. It's God affirming his presence to his people. But what you have going on in 1 Thessalonians 5 is this great distinction. Because the second half of that verse, it's, it's not a rebuke. It's not a reproof, but it's this gentle, tender concern for the one who struggles in these areas. And he's saying, encourage them, help them. And I think this last one is so crucial for us. Be patient with them. And part of what's so crucial about this is understanding that to be faint-hearted or to be weak is not inherently sinful. Otherwise, Paul would just say, admonish them too. But he treats it differently. See, the Bible's engagement 
with those who struggle with depression or despondency or sorrow or uh, being faint-hearted or whatever is to encourage them, it's to help them, and it's to be patient with them. Let me try to illustrate this from my own life. Um, my personality type isn't the type that lends itself towards depression. I've always been pretty comfortable with who I am and who I'm not. I've always been pretty confident in who I am. Um, I tend to see things in a positive light. But in the fall of 2014 and in the early part of 2015, there was a darkness in my soul that was utterly crippling. And it probably took me another year before I would actually call it depression, even though I knew for a fact that's what it was. But I don't want to call it that because then I had to admit that that's what it was. And you play this, right? You play this game in your mind like, well, if I don't call it that, then that's not, yet is. And so I can remember, man, in the middle of this, just right in the middle of this and just struggling through this, Becky and I had gone back to Flagstaff. I think it was for Thanksgiving. And I can remember I was sitting there with one of my pastor buddies, a guy named Caleb, and, and right in downtown Flagstaff at this little restaurant right on the corner of Aspen and San Francisco. And, I'm, and if you know Caleb, some of you have met Caleb before. He's been here before. Some of you have met him. Caleb's like this super laid back, chill, calm. I mean, he's just pretty mild mannered guy. And we're sitting there and we're talking and he goes, bro, you're depressed. And I started to push back. No, 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 no. It's just, I'm kind of struggling. It's hard. Very gently yet very firmly said, no, no, you're depressed. And you need to own it. And you need to get it into the light. And you need to get people who will walk with you. And he said, and I will walk with you. And I was thinking about that this week, obviously. Um given the nature of the message. But I couldn't help but think of my engagement with Caleb and, and not think about 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. Because what he was in that moment is that he was encouraging a man who was faint-hearted, he was helping a man who was weak, and he was being patient with a man who needed someone to be patient with him. That's what it is to minister to people who find themselves in this place. I'm going to encourage, I'm going to help and I'm going to be patient with them. Because what Caleb didn't, never told me th- that day, he didn't tell me to repent. He didn't rebuke me. He was like, how dare you? There, there was none of this, hey, you're a pastor. You better figure it out, bro. It was, man, I, I want to encourage you. I want to help you. Um, I want to walk with you. I'm going to be patient with you. That is, in short, what the Bible calls us to in terms of how we how we treat this, how we engage this, how we respond to those who struggle with that. So with that kind of as a, maybe a lead-in, let's flip over to Psalm 42 and 43. Psalm 42, Psalm 43, um, two separate psalms, though I think you'll see uh, how they're pretty easily connected to uh, one another. These are <clears throat> the sons of Korah, so these are guys who would lead worship in the temple. And really, really, my goal for this is not so much for us to exegete this and break it down and like, hey, here are the four points and the main ideas. I mean, I think that's important. But really, when you read the Psalms, really the most important thing is to feel the Psalm and to experience the Psalm. And David Pallison says this about the Psalms. He says, the Psalms give us templates of experience and we fill in the details. So, so it unpacks, here are the emotions, here's the sentiment, here's the feelings. And in fact, when I read through this, I promise you, you'll do this. You'll start putting certain things into your life, into this psalm. Oh, I remember when this happened, and that's how I felt. Oh yeah, I know that feeling, because that was going on at this part of my life. I wrote this down for this second goal, an experience of depression in the Psalms. I mean, that's really not an encouraging thing to show up on a Sunday morning. Hey, what'd you talk about? Uh, an ex- I'm, I, we experienced depression at church. What did you talk about? Something better than that. Okay, but that's where we're at. Okay. Psalm 42, Psalm 43. Here's, here's what I want to do. I want, I want to read the psalm. I mean, I'm never going to encourage you to not read your Bible in church or anywhere for that matter. But I'll, let me say this. If it would be freeing for you to close your eyes and listen, then do that. 
if it would be freeing for you to put your head down or do what I, then do it. What I want you to do is I want you to hear and I want you to feel and I want you to experience what's happening as this guy is literally pouring out his heart in terms of where he is. Let me read this. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation. And my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God my exceeding joy. And I'll praise you with lyre. With the lyre. O oh God my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation, and my God. I mean, can you feel that? Probably thinking about things in your own life. I mean, I couldn't help even reading it then. There were a couple things popping into my mind. Like, I, I know that. I've lived that. I mean, it's so evocative how he writes. Keep in mind, I mean, th th this is the guy... Could you imagine if Aaron stood up this morning like, hey, let's worship the Lord. God, why have you rejected me? Right? I mean, like, you'd be like, what is going on here? That's, that's who this guy is who wrote this. Would lead worship in the temple. An experience of depression in the Psalms. Let me just do two things with this for just a moment. I want to talk about the descriptions of despondency here. And then just begin to see some of the responses in the psalm itself. So notice this. Just make note. I'm just going to try to run through these pretty quickly here. The descriptions of despondency. So all the different ways that the psalmist is talking about how he's despondent. Verse 1 of chapter 42 or Psalm 42. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Now. That's a verse as Christians that we love to put on t-shirts and mugs and on calendars. And we're like, this verse is awesome. And we miss the context. Yes, he's talking about being thirsty for God. But what he's really talking about, the imagery that's given is being in, he's, he's dry and he's dazed and he's bewildered as he's stumbling through this blazing wilderness. You ever been hiking in the desert in the summer and have no water? That's a miserable and kind of terrifying experience. Now take that experience and apply it to the depths of your soul. That's what he's saying. My soul is parched. My soul is thirsty. It's withered. It's dry. It's dying. That's what he's getting at. In fact, Jeremiah in Jeremiah 14 describes a similar scene in the first six verses, just this barrenness 
of the land because of no water. My soul pants, or so pants my soul for you. Verse 3. I mean, check out this line. My tears have been my food day and night. Yikes. I mean, that's an evocative statement. That's a profound statement. All I do is cry. All I consume is is this despondency. It's all I have. It's constant. My tears have been my food day and night. Later in verse 3, while they say to me all the day long, where's your God? This taunt. I bet some of you in moments of, of, of darkness of your soul have heard that same taunt. Where's your God? Where's he now? Why isn't he showing up? Why isn't he doing? Why isn't he is? We just can't see it. Verse 4, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, right? This raw, exposed, vulnerable reality. Verse 5, which is also repeated in verse 11 and again in 43, 5. This question that he says, why are you cast down on my soul and why are you in turmoil within me? Like, why? Why why are you this way? Why is this? Why am I struggling? Why can't I see? Why? And then he just states it as a fact in verse 6. My soul is cast down within me. It's true. Verse 7, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. How about this imagery? All of your breakers and waves have gone over me. That is a vivid picture of the imagery of being overwhelmed. It's like getting stuck in the waves in the ocean and being unable to get out of it and just constantly consumed by it. Verse 9, I say to God, why have you forgotten me? Right, that's that distortion of belief. I feel lost. God, where are you? Later in verse 9, why do I go on mourning? Verse 10, he repeats this taunt of where is your God. Verse 11, again, why are you cast down on my soul? 43, 2, why have you rejected me? Another distortion of belief that God has rejected him. I mean, but can you begin to sense and feel where this guy is at? I mean, this is bleak. This is a guy that leads worship in the temple. And it's bleak. And yet notice, even in the midst of this, even in the midst of all of these very real struggles, right here in these same Psalms, you see some of the response to this. You see the responses to the despondency. In verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 42, he identifies his longing for God. Right? I'm parched, I'm dry, I'm withering. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. I'm unsatisfied because I know my need for the Lord and that only He will satisfy me, much like the woman at the well in John 4. Where do you get that living water? Yeah, you're not going to pull it out of that well. You're going to find it in the person of Jesus. In verse 4, he talks about remembering times of worship. He returns to this time where he would lead people in worship with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Part of the response to this is to return to worship. Now listen, listen, I get it. That's really easy to say. And in the moment, it might be the most difficult thing to do. I get that. I get it. That's why we call it a sacrifice of praise. Because you're giving something up. It's not easy. It says this in verse 5, hope in God. Verse 11, hope in God. 43, 5, hope in God. I mean, that's ultimately where our hope is. We put our hope in God. That's what we return to. That's where we come back to over and over and over again. That my hope is in Him. Verse 8, we sing and pray to God. Verse, or chapter 43, verse 1, we ask God to vindicate, defend, and deliver. I mean, this is really the heart of prayer, and this is the heart of the gospel. 
I recognize that, that I need Jesus to stand in my place, that I can't do it in and of myself. I desperately need a Savior to advocate for me. It's the gospel right here. God, vindicate me. Defend my cause. Deliver me. It's the saving work of Jesus. 43.2, that we take refuge in God. I mean, look at the first part of 43.2. There's such a this strong, strong, strong contrast here. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Right? That, that, that picture of shelter and security. And then right on the other side, why have you rejected me? I mean, you see the struggle. Like, I know who you are. Why am I exposed? And then he responds in verse 3 by send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. God, put your light out. Put your truth out. Let that be what leads me. To be led by God's light. What do we do with this? How do we respond to this? I mean, we've started to do a little bit of that already in Psalm 42 and 43. Final goal. How do we respond to this? Let me talk about this from two sides. One, if I find myself struggling with depression. And then on the other side, if I find myself walking with someone who struggles with depression. If you find yourself struggling with depression, let me give you four things. Um, First of all, this, when we look at Psalm 42 and 43, <clears throat> you express your struggle. You, express, you, you talk about it. I mean, if, if Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 teaches us anything, it, it tells us, man, you've got to talk about these things. I think about Caleb's comment to me, man, you've got to own this. And you've got to get it into the light. I know that's like the last thing that you want to hear if you find yourself in this place. I get it. I get it. But this is what we see in Psalm 42 and 43. He's sharing his heart with God. He's sharing his heart with others. You express your struggle. Secondly, you put your hope in God. Not once, not twice, but three times. He makes that statement. And it's not a statement. It's actually an exhortation. Hope in God. Do this. Put your hope in God. And, and he's toggling throughout the entirety of these two psalms between this, this place of frustration and hurt and disappointment and understanding that, that his hope is found in God and that God's ability to heal and to save and redeem and restore. You put your hope in God. Thirdly, um, this will be disappointing, but we have to say this. Don't expect a quick fix. Don't expect a quick fix. And so again, look at that phrase in verse 5, hope in God. That word hope, um, interesting, it actually means waiting with an expectation in a painful circumstance. That's what the word actually means. It's waiting in expectation <clears throat> or with an expectation in a painful circumstance. It's this idea that this hurts and it's miserable and it's hard and it's terrible. And I have this hope that eventually one day God's going to come. But I'm not just going to wake up tomorrow and be better. Now, every once in a while that happens, and that's awesome, and we praise God for that, and we recognize the miraculous work of God in that, uh, but that is very much the exception, not the rule. You don't expect a quick fix. Fourthly, um, ask good questions of your situation. Ask good questions of your situation. Here's what I mean by this. I, I, I stole this from Pallison. Um, in one of his lectures on depression. And I was like, man, this is just too good not to use. And so he has five questions on the experience of depression. Let me give them to you quickly. Um, if you type A, people are going to be bugged because you didn't get them all written down. I can send you a copy or whatever. Just, just experience it, okay? Don't worry about putting words on your paper. Make sure you understand this. First question, is depression the best word to use? Is it the best word to use? Or is there something better? Is grief a better word? Is sorrow a better word? Is dejection a better word? And that's important because how we, when we begin to identify what's actually going on, it, it, it changes how it is that we respond to these things. Okay? Is depression the best word to use? Second of all, is the experience essentially biological? Is it a biological thing? That's held in tension with this third question. Is the experience essentially sinful? crucial that we make a distinction between these two things. Fourthly, 
what are the various factors that can come into play in this experience? So what are the different things that are, that, that are factoring into this? What are the different components that are going to maybe uh, influence how we see or understand or, or, or to interpret what's happening in front of us? And finally, this question. <clears throat> if there is no neat explanation or simple fix, then where is our point of contact for understanding this experience? I think this is the most crucial one, hands down. If there is no neat explanation or simple fix, then where is our point of contact for understanding this experience? Essentially, how do I understand this? What is God's purpose in this? And most importantly, who am I running to in the process of this? Do I find myself at the feet of Jesus? Do I find myself um, casting my cares with Christian brothers and sisters and people who are going to point me to Jesus and help me? Or am I running to other stuff? How do I respond if I struggle with depression? Here's the other side of this. How do I respond if I'm walking with someone who's struggling with depression? I'm going to start where we finish. Ask good questions of their situation. In fact, I would ask those same five questions. I'd ask the same five questions because when you understand what you're dealing with, it informs how you proceed. Secondly, I'd go back to 1 Thessalonians 5.14. I would encourage, I would help, and I'd be patient. That's the biblical response. I mean, honestly, if you remember anything, if you walk out of here with one thing today, one thing and one thing only, let it be 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Let it be that. That I would encourage the faint-hearted, that I would help the weak, and that I'd be patient with them all. And again, let me just stress patience, right? This isn't going to get fixed overnight. Finally, comfort. You comfort people in situations like this. It's so grievous to me how often in the church we're so cold and callous to people who struggle with this and we tell them to get over it or try harder or love Jesus better. We're so insensitive in this, man. And you go read 2 Corinthians 1 and it's talking about the comfort that that Jesus has offered to us in our affliction and that that should be the same comfort that we offer to others. That's the response. That's how you love someone in this. If it's an area of sin, by all means, speak into the area of sin. But with everything else, you comfort them in the same way that Christ has comforted you. Let me say this before we get to texts. If you're here this morning and you find yourself struggling with this, our desire is to help you. Our desire is to walk with you. Our desire is to love and to care for you. We cannot do that if we don't know. And so what I'm asking you is if you find yourself in this place, I'm asking you to to take what's a really, really hard step, but to be bold and to be courageous. Shoot me a text, send me an email, grab me after the service, call me. I don't care how you do it. Grab an elder, grab an elder's wife, grab a pastor, a pastor's wife, whatever, whoever you're comfortable with, and just say, I need to get help. Can you help me with this? And we will help you find the help that you need, whatever that looks like. Okay. Do we have questions? Okay. Dang it. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I mean, it's scary. I'm not going to lie. I'm scared. Um, because of the implications, because of the implications, but can we do that? I'm going to pray actually. Can I do that? Can I pray for us before we answer questions? I need it. Um, I think we all need it. Let me pray. Jesus, God, first of all, I pray that you'd help us, um, to think rightly on these things. God, I, I think of the spirit being a spirit of one of comfort and encouragement And I think of things like depression really being the antithesis of that. And so I pray that your spirit would just flood into hearts and minds and lives right now in this moment. And that you would be accomplishing that in people's lives if there are folks here that struggle with this. God, as we answer these questions, I I just pray for wisdom. I need your spirit to guide and direct and give good insight. Um, God, I don't want to say anything that's contrary to your word or to your will. And so we pray for your leading in this. And we just pray this in your name. Amen. All right, here we go. How should you respond when you continue to seek God and it only seems to get worse? No, don't give up. (laughs) Don't give up. Um, 
Yeah, that's, that's a hard question. I, I think um, what instantly came to my mind is Luke 18 and the persistent widow. <clears throat> you know, what, one of the things that really we didn't talk much about over the course of the sermon is, is the, the power and the effect of prayer. Um, and I, I get that that's assumed and implied in this, that, that there's prayer, that there's things like that going on. But when you look in Luke 18, I think there's a couple things there that are really helpful. Let me flip over there. So Luke 18, persistent widow. <coughs> Jesus tells this parable. In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept, kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. So keep in mind, it's a, <coughs> a judge who doesn't fear God and doesn't respect man. She wants justice. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man. Yet because this widow <coughs> keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. So here's the idea. Unrighteous judge, doesn't really care about other people. I'm beat down by the persistence of this woman. I'm going to relent. Check out what Jesus goes on to say. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So I think on one side, there's a persistence. There's a persistence. Here's one other place I want to run to. Um, <clears throat> First Peter 4. First Peter's a good book if you're struggling because um, there's a lot of suffering that's going on in First Peter. <clears throat> Here, First Peter 4.19 says this. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's a hard verse, isn't it? Let those who suffer, I hate those next three words, according to God's will. What do we do with that? Well, we entrust our souls to who? To a faithful creator while doing good. How do you respond when you continue to seek God and it only seems to get worse? I think we're persistent in prayer. And I think you, you understand this is part of God's will for my life and I will entrust my soul to that faithful creator and I will continue to do good even though what's in front of me is miserable. That's maybe not the answer you want, but I think that those are a couple places in the scripture that give us wisdom on that. We got something else? Okay. To what, ex- to what extent is depression a matter of spiritual attack? Are unbelievers more prone to depression? Man, those are good questions. Okay, so to what extent is depression a matter of spiritual attack? I think for every situation it's probably a little bit different, uh, but I think no doubt that's, that's a piece of it. Um, I, I think when you look at um, some of the factors that Pallison lays out for us, those are really helpful in that, <clears throat> especially things like um, disappointment and loss, difficulty of life, things like that. Those are components that Satan uses. In fact, even in Psalm 42 and 43, not once but twice, that taunt of where is your God? I think that's part of it. And that's where 1 Peter is so helpful. Let those who suffer according to God's will. Right? I'm sitting here suffering, and we, we have this complex, we have this comfort, uh, comfort complex in our country where we think that as Christians we're supposed to be comfort and things are always supposed to be easy. And yet, I don't know, I've just never read anywhere, at least in the Bible, where, where that happened for people. There was a lot of suffering, there was a lot of hardship, there was a lot of difficulty, there just wasn't a lot of times of peace and prosperity. In fact, even the Golden Age, right, during King David's life, they were constantly at war. So, so I, I, I think part of it is, is understanding the nature of spiritual attack. Um, Ephesians 6, uh, helping us to understand that, right? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle, wrestle against the, the, the powers, the authorities, the principalities. Um, it, no doubt, it's certainly a piece of it. <clears throat> now, if you're in continual habitual sin and God is bringing heavy conviction upon you, don't call it spiritual attack. It's unrepentance. That's what that is. Um, and you need to repent and quit sinning. Um, but that's, that's a totally different dynamic. Most of us, that's probably not the case for what's going on. Are unbelievers more prone to depression? Golly, I would sure think so. I mean, the Spirit of God has lived inside of me for three decades, and I got ravaged for six months. He was no less present in my life. But that was savage. I mean, I wouldn't, worse that, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. Uh, I can't prove it. But I think not having the Spirit of God living inside of you would make you more prone to struggling with things. I, I don't really know what else to say on that. So, got another one? 
Okay. If someone chooses to end their life after they battle depression, do they lose their salvation? I was hoping this would come up. Um, no. They don't. Is it a selfish act? Absolutely. Um, is it a grievous act? Totally. Is it heartbreaking? Is it tragic? Yes. But here's the deal. I mean, let's just boil it down real simple. What saves you? It's the grace of God. You do not. I mean, how many places could we go in the scriptures that would go, okay, I did nothing. God did everything. I did not. And so, of course, the implication then is this. If I did nothing to earn my salvation, I can do nothing to lose my salvation. Titus 3, Ephesians 2, um, <clears throat> John 3. I mean, we go all kinds of different places in terms of this. And so I, I, I'm not, I, I've been intrigued to trace the roots of where this suddenly became an act that would cause us to lose salvation. Historically, I'd love to, to, to needle back to where that happened. Um, I think some of it is probably rooted in the value that God has for life. And I think maybe that's underlying some of the thinking around this. But if I can lose my salvation because I sin, then we're all up a creek without a paddle, right? And so what makes this any different than I battle infidelity and cheat on my wife and then I die in a car wreck or I battle alcohol addiction and go get drunk and die in a car wreck or whatever it is. I mean, it's no different. It's no different. It's the same thing. I'm sin and separated from God and we're thankful for the grace of Jesus. Good question, um, but no. And you just won't find it in the scriptures. More importantly, you won't find that anywhere in the scriptures. <clears throat> is it unbiblical to take prescription medication for depression? Okay, um, here, so you guys remember where we started this series uh, and, and agreeing and disagreeing? I think Romans 14 becomes really helpful for us on this. If you have a strong personal conviction, um, if you lean on this in an unhealthy way, if prescription medication becomes uh, really or essentially replaces the Holy Spirit, then yes, it could become sinful or wrong. Uh, to just take prescription medication for depression, is that in general wrong? No. It's only wrong when, when I've replaced God, I've made it an idol, um, there's an unhealthy dependency, things of that nature. Now, different people have very different convictions on this, um, and so you're going to land in different places. And that's where Romans 14 is really, really helpful for us. Some of you might be like, I don't, I don't take any medication. I, I don't want, like, man, if, if, it's, if it's a pill, I won't take it. Great. Hold your conviction. Romans 14 lets you do that. The person next to you might be like, I love medication. I'm thankful for the advances in medicine. I'm so thankful I didn't live 400 years ago uh, and I'm for it. Okay, great. You hold that conviction on both sides, on both sides where the scripture is not explicitly clear. We hold those things open-handedly. And so the only place, the only place where I think this becomes unbiblical or maybe unrighteous is if I depend on my medication in a way that is reserved solely for a dependency upon the Spirit of God in my life. That's the only thing that I think you would, you would lean into an area where that would be unrighteous. So, Randy, do you have one more? Okay. <clears throat> These are good questions, by the way. Thank you. Good, thoughtful questions. What does it look like practically to walk with someone in depression? Good question. Um, Every situation looks different because people are different and the factors that contributed are different. And um, there's a number of variables that go into it. A couple of things. One, don't sign up for this if you're not in it for the long haul. Okay? Um, Don't bother starting if you're going to bail. That, 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 that's, (laughs) that's universal on this issue. Okay? There are a lot of variables. That one is not. It's, you think about First Thessalonians 5, patient with them all. Why did he say that? Because he knew it wasn't going to happen overnight. And we're so quick, we're so results-driven and oriented that it's like, well, hey, I spent two sessions with you, you should be fixed. Wrong! I mean, the, the, there are people who will wrestle three, four, five decades with this. What makes you, I mean, think of the arrogance that two hours with you is going to fix them. I mean, seriously, think about that. How arrogant is that? patience. Um, I I think you got to be flexible. So I want to, how do I say this without being insensitive? There's, there's an irrationality in depression, right? That distortion of belief. And so people are going to say things and think things that you're going to be going, that's, that makes no sense. That's just weird. Like, why would you say, and here's the deal. Sometimes even they can go, "I, I know, right? The disconnect between the head and the heart. 
And so you've got to be, be flexible. You've got to be gracious. Now, don't, don't walk out of here and go, hey, everyone who's depressed is a whack job and they can't think. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there's disconnects and there has to be a graciousness, a kindness, a flexibility, um, a, a tenderness that accompanies that. And I think you've got to be available. You, ju- you just got to be willing to like, I might get a text at a time that's inconvenient. I might get a phone call when I really don't want to deal with anything. That's what it is. I mean, you, that's some of the toughest sledding in ministry, but it's also some of the most rewarding aspects of ministry. So if you're like, I just kind of want to dip my toes in the water, pass. How do I walk with someone? You go to the deep end of the pool and you jump in. That's how it works. If you want to take, walk in on the stairs or kind of put your legs in and see, it didn't work like that. So, all right, let me do this. Let me pray. We're going to close with a song and we're going to go home. Um, let, me, let me say this before I pray. Hard, hard issue. Thank you for engaging. I know, I know this morning was just different and, and maybe odd and weird in some ways, but I think it was crucial and necessary. Here's the other thing. Don't walk out of here without being reminded of the hope that we have in Jesus. You and I have an eternal hope. I, I, I don't know. I was thinking about this this week. I wonder if the guy who wrote Psalm 42 and 43, if he ever came out of that place, this side of eternity. I don't know. I know he's out of it now, but I don't know on this side of eternity if he ever came out of it. But even in that, not once, not twice, but three times, hope in God. That's the hope that we have. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we pray. We pray that our hope would be firmly rooted in you. God, we thank you that you are trustworthy and true, that we can count on you, that you're faithful, that you're good, that you are righteous. I pray that you would just give us confidence in you. I pray for those here this morning who are struggling in the midst um, of various aspects of this, that they would sense your spirit, that you would be speaking into their lives. God, that there would be some, some peace from your word that would be encouraging to them, that would lift their spirit and their soul. God, we trust you to do the work that only you can do, and that's what we pray you would do. And so we pray this in your name. Amen.